you're uh, new with us uh, this evening, we, we're really pleased you're here. I should say you've turned up for quite a difficult chapter, so I hope to see you next week. Uh, but uh, great that you're here. And um, if you haven't ever filled in a hello card, we'd love you to do that to help us to keep in touch with you and fill you in a bit on church life here. Head to our website, click on the word hello, and there'll be a digital form, short form for you to fill in if you wish. 2 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to read the whole chapter. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill, and when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where can I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived 
a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry, but Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they've killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Jeshua. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. We're going to pray together for God's help. Father, we recognize that all scripture is God-breathed, given by you, breathed out by you for our help. Lord, we know therefore that we need this chapter, hard though it is. Please open it up to us and open us up to it. Help us to learn from your word the lessons that you have for us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, sin isn't really a serious word anymore, is it? Uh, do, you, do you hear people use it very much outside the church family? Sometimes people might use it to describe uh, a little bit of low-level naughtiness. You know, I, I shouldn't eat another chocolate, that would be a sin. Uh, actually, in the world of dieting, a sin, S-Y-N, apparently is a, a high-calorie treat. So sins are fine, just not too many. Or sin maybe is sometimes used to describe things that the mean old church used to say were wrong. It's best said with an eye roll. Those backward Christians always 
banging on about sin. Sometimes, rarely, someone outside the church might describe something really awful, really shocking, really terrible as a sin. But generally, sin isn't serious. 2 Samuel chapter 13 says, yes, it is. Remember where we are in Israel's history. Their king is a man called David, a shepherd boy exalted to the throne. His reign went up. And then in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we looked through those chapters two weeks ago, it came crashing down. And when his adultery and murder and deception were exposed, the prophet Nathan made a chilling promise. The sword, he said, shall never depart from your house. And that promise begins to be fulfilled here in chapter 13. It is the grimmest of chapters. And it may touch on things that are particularly painful for someone here. And look, if that's the case, you must feel free and able to speak to one of the elders or Linda Park in our women's worker afterwards. Given how awful this chapter is, we need to ask, don't we, why is it in the Bible? We know it's not here for entertainment. It's certainly not here for endorsement. This is what really happened. And we need to read it so that we take sin seriously. Let's walk through the story together, and then we're going to consider two lessons that I think we learn from this sorry chapter. So let's walk it through in three scenes. Scene one, evil counsel. Verses one to five, evil counsel. <clears throat> one of the many problems with taking many wives is a complicated family tree. And the two sons mentioned here, Amnon and Absalom, have the same father, David, but they have different mothers. Amnon's mother was Ahinoam, and Absalom's, Absalom's was Makar. Makar also had a, a beautiful daughter we meet here called Tamar. Amnon, so he thought, loved his half-sister Tamar. Loved, we learn, to the point of making himself ill there in verse 2, but he can't do anything about it. First, of course, there's the problem of the law. Leviticus 18 ruled out marrying your half-sister, and that's what Tamar was to Amnon. Second, there's the problem of Absalom, who won't like it. But Amnon is desperate. Now, what Amnon is experiencing here is what the New Testament calls epithumia. That's the Greek word we find there. The word itself just means strong desire. And it it can be a positive thing. So uh, the Lord Jesus strongly desired to eat the Lord's Supper with his disciples before he died. That's epithemia. But ordinarily, the New Testament uses it to describe sinful desires. Uh, in the parable of the sower, it's strong desire for other things, epithemia, that chokes the word and stops it growing. In Romans 1, we learn that God has given the world over to epithemia. It's the lust of their hearts. Uh, Christians, according to Ephesians 2, used to live in epithumia, in the passions of our flesh, before Christ intervened. Amnon here is man in his natural state, ruled by strong, overwhelming cravings, the descent of the red mist of rage or lust or coveting, a desperate, uncontrollable need for something other than the Lord. If I don't have it, I'll die. It's not true, but it's what sin tells us. You need this. You must have it. That's Amnon. That's everyone without Christ. 
slave to sinful desires. And when sin's red mist descends on a person and envelops them, there's always someone nearby ready to say that it's fine. And that, of course, is Jonadab here, isn't it? Verse 3, Amnon's so-called friend, David's nephew. Jonadab is an enabler. He asks Amnon what's wrong. Amnon tells him, and Jonadab suggests a sly plan to get Tamar alone. It is evil counsel. He surely knows that Tamar won't be safe alone with Amnon when he's in this state. But there are always Jonadabs around if we want to find one. There's always someone claiming to have our best interests at heart who will just tell us whatever it is we want to hear. Think it through with me. When you're trying to make up your mind on a course of action, who is it that you ask for advice? You can be honest with yourself. Do you go normally to a Nathan, the sort of person who's likely to give you godly counsel, even if they know you'll find it hard to hear? Or do you go looking for a Jonadab? Someone who will tell you what you want to hear, even if it's sinful. And again, be honest with yourself. Who are you to other people? Are you more like a Nathan? Or are you more like a Jonadab? So that's scene one, evil counsel. Scene two, an outrageous thing. This is verse six all the way down to verse 22. An outrageous thing. Well, Amnon's put Jonadab's plan into action. David unwittingly plays his part, and Tamar, presumably being a a caring sister, dutifully cares for her brother. She lovingly makes some food. She brings it to her ailing half-brother, who grabs her. She tries to resist there in verse 12. Do not do this outrageous thing. Don't be an outrageous fool. Verse 14. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Now, when it came to David and Bathsheba, we said, didn't we, that we we thought we probably didn't quite have enough information to know whether Bathsheba consented, whether there was any consent there, that though we said that there was a very clear power imbalance at work, there is no ambiguity here. This is rape, and it is awful. But the Me Too movement, of course, has brought sexual assault into the spotlight over the past few years. Predatory men have been exposed. Voiceless victims have been emboldened to speak out. Chapters like this one here remind us that the Bible has been condemning violence and the abuse of power and sexual assault long before Me Too. God loves women. He made them to be co-equal with men in dignity and honor. Jesus' treatment of women was revolutionary. The writer Dorothy Sayers put it this way. She wrote, Perhaps it was no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man, who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about women, never treated them as either the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who 
who took their questions and arguments seriously, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. Now we want to be, don't we, a church in Jesus' image in this respect? And where we've fallen short, we should repent. Well, if we hadn't already realized that Amnon's profession of love is a delusion to himself as much as anybody else, verse 15 confirms it, isn't it? What a terrible verse that is. The moment he's taken from Tamar what he wants, his so-called love turns to hatred. In fact, his hatred for her is stronger than his love so-called ever was. He uses her and then just tosses her away. That is how sin works, isn't it? That thing I must have that experience I must have, that craving I must satisfy, the moment I have it, it turns to ashes in my mouth. A temporary high turns into a desperate low. Lust gives way to shame and loathing. And the victim here, discarded. You see Tamar there, verse 19. Have a look at Tamar in verse 19. Tears flowing down her beautiful face. Hands tearing her virgin robe, just as Amnon had, had torn her purity apart. In verse 20, Absalom finds her. Verse 20 is so sad, isn't it? And verse 20, so Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. It's the last here that we hear of poor Tamar. She's the victim of, well, what exactly? Some people would say this is Toxic masculinity, well, it's certainly toxic. But of course, Amnon's problem isn't, first of all, that he's male, it's that he's a sinner. <coughs> this is the horror of sin. This is where sin wants to take people if we're willing. There's much more to say here, but just a word on the discarded Tamars of the world before we leave her. A pastor in America tells the story of attending a youth rally on sexual purity. And the speaker at the rally, it wasn't the pastor, he was just in the, in the audience, but the speaker at the rally in the front, uh, to impress on the youth the preciousness of sexual purity, passed around a, a red rose. And as the rose was passed around the room, people held it and smelt it and saw how lovely the rose was. But of course, by the time the rose had been passed all the way around the room and then passed back to the speaker, it had wilted, it drooped, the petals had fallen off. And the speaker asked the crowd the question, who wants the rose? The implied answer, of course, was no one. It's a compelling image, isn't it? Who would want defiled Tamar? But the pastor, as he recounted this experience, said that he, he wanted in that moment to stand up and yell, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants the rose. You know, one of the reasons people like Tamar are included in the Bible is because even when no one else cares about them, even when the world has chewed them up and spat them out, when the world finds them unmarriable, unappetizing, when, as it were, all their petals have fallen off, Jesus wants them. Jesus loves them. You see the question Tamar asks Amnon when she's desperately trying to persuade him not to do what he's 
about to do in verse 13, that agonizing question, verse 13, as for me, where could I carry my shame? Where could I carry my shame? What's the answer? Jesus. Jesus is the place we carry our shame and our scars and our sorrows and our broken hearts. So if you can see yourself at all in Tamar here, Jesus cares for you. He cares for you in all the ways that Amnon didn't really care for Tamar. You can bring your shame to him. He really does love you. So let's finish this awful story, shall we, in a final scene, and then consider what it means. Scene three, a dish best served cold. Verses 23 through to 29. Well, poor Tamar has exited the stage and it leaves Absalom to decide what to do about Amnon and the answer is simple. Revenge, and notice it will be served cold. Verse 23 tells us that two years passed before Absalom acts, two years presumably of plotting and planning, and again King David is powerless to stop him. Verse 25, verse 27, Absalom's cunning has persuaded his father to send Amnon along to what might have been a sort of sheep shearing festival. And there in verse 28, Absalom lays out the plan. Wait until Amnon's heart is merry, until he's a little bit tipsy on the wine. He's off guard, he's vulnerable. And when the moment comes, kill him. Of course, like his father before him, Absalom won't bloody his own hands. He sends in the lackeys. It's a hit worthy of the mafia. It's cold-blooded murder. And it's true, of course, that Amnon deserved death for what he'd done. The writer isn't writing this so that we'll feel some kind of sympathy for Amnon. He is, though, hoping that we'll remember that vengeance belongs to the Lord. That violence begets violence. That it's the Lord's job to repay. It's an early sign, isn't it, that Absalom won't turn out much better than the half-brother who's just killed. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to go through the rest of chapters 13 and, and 14. It all hangs together in one sense. But suffice to say, David is told what happened in a confusing way, but finally he gets to the truth, and his heart is broken. And no wonder, see it from his point of view, one son is dead, another daughter is defiled and desolate, another son is a murderer, a fugitive on the run. And David must have heard those words from Nathan echoing around his head over and over again. The sword is tearing his house apart. So there's the story. Let's, as we finish, ask ourselves, given that we don't like this chapter, we find it hard, don't we? Why do we need it? Well, here are two reasons, I think. And they may be very obvious to you already. First, we need to see David's sin and how sin ruins everything. Sin ruins everything. Everything here flows, doesn't it, from David's sin? And what's the story about? If you had to summarize it, you'd say it's about sexual immorality and then murder. Have you heard that before? It's chapter 11 all over again. These boys are chips off the old block. As children grow up, we can often see their parents in them, can't we? Physically, they, I don't know, they have their mum's eyes or their dad's nose or whatever it is. But the same can be true. In some cases, it can be true morally and spiritually too. We, we can't pass on our faith to our children, though perhaps we'd love to. And it's true that sometimes children turn out very, very differently from their parents. 
Even the keenest, godliest parents can produce wayward children. That's true. We need to remember that. But, but sometimes we do see the sins of the parents repeated in the children. That violent temper, that love of gossip, that fascination with money, that apathy towards church. And this, of course, is why the final responsibility for, for example, discipling children at our church rests with our parents. A church's youth work can only do so much over two or three hours a week. You compare that with the hours a child might spend in the company of their parents, what a responsibility that is. What an opportunity. But of course, this isn't, first of all, about parenting. There might be things we can learn, but it's not, is it? It's about sin. It, it ruins everything. Sin ruins David's moral authority. All the way through this story, David is powerless to know what to do, to know how to act. Sin ruins Tamar. You see her tearing her robes in desolation. Sin sets brother against brother, nation against nation, Cain and Abel, Russia and Ukraine. Sin tears us apart. When I was reading this passage through earlier this week, I found myself making the same note over and over again in the margin. One word, awful, 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 awful. That's the point, isn't it? Sin isn't just a bit of light naughtiness. It is awful. Sin ruins everything and everyone. And we need this chapter, don't we? I need this chapter because we need to sit in the awfulness of sin. To sit in its consequences, to feel together the ruin of it. To see the tears rolling down Tamar's cheeks. To see Amnon's blood pooling around his corpse. To see what sin would have us do to each other. We need to learn to hate it. To hate the damage it does to others and the offense that it causes God. To resolve to make no peace with it, to confess it, to repent it, as we thought about of it last week, and bring it to the cross. And in the joy of God's forgiveness, and filled with all the power of the Holy Spirit, to wage an unending war on it until death or the return of Christ. that is what you're doing, if you find yourself at the moment in a pitch battle with sin, if you're crying out to God for help, keep going. Ignore the Jonadabs, the Jonadabs, wherever you're finding them, who will tell you that you're better off giving up and giving in. Just indulge. No, resist. See what sin does. And fight. And can we agree that we're going to do this together as a church family? We have a, a potentially turbulent period ahead of us, don't we, over the next few months? Sometimes pastoral vacancies are opportunities for sin to run riot. People lobbying for this person or that, or this agenda or that. Are we going to let that happen? Are we going to be ruled by sin and its ruin? Or ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ and his peace? Which brings us finally to the second reason we need this passage. And it concerns David's son. That is, where are we going to find him? Where are we going to find David's son? Do you remember 2 Samuel 7? One of the high points in Samuel, the covenant God made with David. And he made this glorious promise. A promise that David's son would sit on an everlasting and righteous throne. 
And then here we are in chapter 13, and it's a story all about David's sons. The story of the heir and the spare. And the heir is a rapist and the spare is a murderer. So this is the tension that Samuel creates for us. The answer to human wickedness is this son of David promised in 2 Samuel 7. But the sons of David in 2 Samuel aren't the solution, they're the problem. And it's not just them, is it? Sin in all of its awfulness is innate to everybody. Every leader we elect is a sinner. Every king we crown, every president or every prime minister we empower is a sinner. Where are we going to find a leader who can rescue us? Where are we going to find the one who can reverse the effects of the curse? To undo the chaos and the mess that we've made. And of course the answer, the only answer, the only one who could ever possibly undo 2 Samuel 13 is the Lord Jesus Christ. He must be the only answer, mustn't he? Only a king from God can break the cycle. A king, if you like, with an earthly mother but a heavenly father. A, a, a king who became like us in every way, yet without sin. Have you read Jesus' life recently? We're going through it together in Mark in the morning. Isn't it beautiful? Beautifully sinless without corruption, without extortion, without abuse. See how he treats women. See how he loves his enemies. See how he leaves justice and vengeance to God. This is why he's so compelling, isn't it? He's like us and yet he isn't like us in every way, yet without sin. So as well as teaching us about sin, teaching us to hate it, doesn't this chapter teach us to love the Lord Jesus Christ? What a leader we have. What a king God has put over his church. And what a church we'll be when we submit to his rule together. Will we be ruled by him as a church? Will we let his purity and peace rule our life together? Will we let his love and care for women shape ours? Will we protect rather than exploit those weaker than ourselves in our church family? Will we ask his spirit to make us a church in his image. As we leave chapter 13, may the Lord teach us to hate sin in every form, but to love and honor and worship our spotless, perfect Savior King.